Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Well, I'm excited to, uh, to go through this teaching tonight. This is something that <clears throat> I feel like is, is kind of a, a culmination of uh, my journey thus far. Uh, I've been following the Lord uh, since 2004 now, uh, so uh, 18 years, and been studying the Word and with an uh, end-time focus for uh, the better part of the past 16 years. So um, I'm excited to, uh, to do this teaching because like I said, I believe it is a uh, kind of a, a culmination, kind of a mile marker for me. So uh, just so you know, I'm kind of viewing this as uh, a resource for, for anyone, of course, but I, I'm really looking as, a, uh, as this is a foundation to give to my girls as a starting point. So with that, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your heart for us, that we would persevere all things and that we would see you in the end. And through all the, the ins and outs, the ups and downs, that we would be with you where you are. That you and us, and us and you, that we would be made perfect as one, that our strength would be in coming together, yes, close together. God, would you mark us with this message and give us clarity in your word, in Jesus' name. Well, amen. This this resource is called Faithful to the End. We have need of endurance. And uh, as I've been studying the word, I've... I found this uh, theme to be such a, a common reoccurrence, and um, throughout Jesus' teaching, throughout the, the New Testament, there is this uh, reiteration over and over that there is a need for endurance, that the saints are to, to persevere, and we shouldn't find it odd if we're facing tribulation or we have troubles in this life, and the, the passage into the kingdom is, is on a narrow road, and all of these different uh, common uh, and, and uh, agree in alignment themes um, that I find so potent and so, uh, so well uh, put together by Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. And so this teaching is basically a walkthrough of Matthew 24 and 25. And uh, I am blown away by the, the way that Jesus answers the question that he kind of uh, set a trap for his disciples to ask. And in this, uh, this two-chapter, just amazingly filled and packed resource that Jesus gives... He's created a, uh, a blueprint, a battle plan, a, a walkthrough for the end of the age, for the, for the generation that would experience the transition of this age into the next, but have to go through the, the greatest and most terrible time that, that anyone has ever faced. He gives us so much 
resource. And it's, it's a comfort to know that, that he's given us this, this, uh, this walkthrough as uh, that we would be those who have understanding. We would be the wise ones in this generation, that we would have uh, bright and shining lamps, that we would lead many to righteousness, that we would be those who are, uh, who are wise uh, in, in a uh, foolish generation. And so with that, let's jump into uh, the unfolding of this, this storyline that, that Jesus gives. So to give the setting, the disciples are walking around and they're, they're around the temple and they start pointing to Jesus and say, Jesus, take a look at this temple. And he, he answers with a, a seemingly abrupt shift in the conversation and says, guys, it's a cool building. I'll give, I'll give you that. But there's, there's going to be a destruction to hit this place, and specifically even this building, that there won't even be one stone on top of the other. And... I have to believe that he asked, or that he he makes this statement in such a way that provokes them to ask, like, is this happening tomorrow? When is this happening? So they ask the question and say, "Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age?" So they're already connecting this to Jesus's reign and his rule, and they they've already got a tip off after having been with him that he's he's entering into one of those. Uh, into those moments where he's going to begin revealing uh, what his kingdom is going to be like. And so they ask the question, when is this going to happen? And uh, it's tied to, to, the, to, the, to your coming, right, to when you establish your kingdom. And so what happens over the next 93 verses is this unfolding of a drama that had to have left them shell-shocked. I can't I can't imagine their response being anything other than sobriety, fear and trembling, and the, the, the sense of we have, to, we have to know Jesus. We have to, we have to get our lives in alignment to be prepared so that we can endure. I believe that they, they were convinced that uh, this would be their generation, um, and, and you can see that by the way they live their lives and the fruit of their lives. They began to live as living sacrifices, as those who were uh, poured out for Jesus. And that ultimately manifests in the way that many of them uh, met the end of their lives with a martyr's death. They gave a martyr's witness as a fruit of their lives. And so Jesus begins to give the answer... And what's interesting about this is the answer that he gives ends up being a, uh, an international or a global, uh, an answer of global implication and application. There's a couple of local realities uh, that he'll speak to, but for the most part, what we're going to see is a widespread uh, unfolding of, of dramatic events that will end up touching uh, the the rage of Satan, the, uh, the wickedness of man coming to its fullness, and then ultimately the, uh, a manifestation and display of God's sovereignty over the entire situation. Jesus, with a, a shepherd's heart, 
begins to walk them through systematically and gives them certain mile markers that they can clearly identify. And all of this is designed to equip them, to encourage them, to strengthen them and give them confidence that they could endure. So what he does, uh, I'm in part C here. He gives a, a layout Answering the question of when will these things happen, what a kindness, Jesus actually gives them a timeline. He gives them a sequence of events, but interspersed throughout this this whole narrative that he gives in this timeline, he shepherds their hearts. He gives them pastoral advice. And then near the end, he, he gives them seven different parables. And the... the uh, reason for these parables, I believe, is to, to not just tell these, these stories that have uh, interesting insights. It's, it's instead to give them a sense of what it will feel like. These parables are designed to put you in the place of these, these different characters in the story, to be able to feel the, uh, the drama unfolding around you, the sense of, of crisis, the chaos the delay of what's happening, and then ultimately the consequences, good or bad, of what's going to happen. So he answers them and, and sets the tone really for the entire next two chapters. And he says, see that no one leads you astray. He gives them the initial pastoral um, instruction, what I'm about to tell you is going to be pretty crazy. See that no one leads you astray. I'm telling you the truth of what's about to happen. So as they ask the question of when, he answers, see that no one leads you astray. And then he gives a series of different trends and events. And then he, he gives a, uh, a kind of a summary of this brief passage. What we're going to be looking at real quick is Matthew 24, 4 through 8. In verse 8, he ends it with, all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains, or the beginning of sorrows. So what he's about to describe are troubling events, but then he, he uh, gives them some clarity and says, while this may be troubling, it's not even the beginning of the end yet. This is just the beginning of, the sor- of sorrows. As he starts out with this pastoral, uh, just shepherding, he emphasizes that this is only the beginning, but he gives them some very specific indicators of what the season of the beginning of sorrows or the birth pains will look like. He says this, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. And so even today, as we're looking at the context around us with some very troubling events happening with Russia and Ukraine, I want to give us some courage and some peace that there will be wars and rumors of wars, but Jesus' advice is that we're not alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. So we, we can put these things in proper perspective and not lose our way. We cannot 
be troubled in our hearts, while at the same time partnering with the Lord in the things uh, that I believe are on his heart, that we, that we could partner with him in praying for the end of conflict and praying for the church to be a witness in that region and, and for those who are experiencing difficulty. I think those things are good, but we need not lose our way. Here are these two signs, deception, and then he clarifies that there's going to be false Christ. There's an interesting unfolding. What we're going to end up seeing is there's three different occasions where there's false messengers arise. I believe in this first instance, in this season of the birth pangs, these false Christs are kind of um, just cultish, weird um, people who are, uh, you know, just deceived and... and uh, bored or something, I don't know, but this, this one I think, while, while of course have, have real implications on real people's lives, I think is the least of our worries, and uh, we'll see as, as these uh, different false messengers arise throughout this, this timeline that Jesus describes, but these are, are kind of the things that we've already seen. You, you've seen the, the false Christ, the people who have claimed to be Jesus or have claimed to be the Messiah, even since Jesus was around right after his his death and resurrection, there were those who who began to rise up, and even in our current day, some of these people have lots of followers, and that's that's not to, again, negate the, the impact that they've had on individuals and families and communities, but this is only the scratching the surface of, of what we'll end up seeing. In the same way, the wars and rumors of wars. These are trends and events that we're going to see, and we're only going to see these things increase. But again, we need not have our hearts trouble. He continues in verse 7 and says, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Gave you a breakdown there of some of the uh, the list that he gives there, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, those are two separate uh, types of conflicts that he describes. One, uh, kind of racial conflicts that could be two neighboring nations with different racial makeup. Could be, um, you know, civil war. Could be something uh, along those lines of, of ethnic conflicts. And then kingdom against kingdom, that could be more uh, different territorial or, or sovereign nation against other sovereign nation, those type of things. Now we know, and, and even you know, here in the, in the past week, we've heard uh, some concern about food supplies and, and about uh, the results of, of war. You know, even just looking at the immediate context of conflict, Russia and Ukraine produce a lot of the grain for the entire planet, a quarter of the grain. I think there's going to be some conflict with, uh, with supply and demand. Some of these things are natural byproducts of war, but some of these things are just part of the season that, that happen. And when we see these things happening, uh, we ought to be paying attention. Famines. Um, some, some other versions include pestilence or uh, other like... Uh, you know, that could be epidemic or pandemic type stuff. Earthquakes in various places, not necessarily a byproduct of war. But the time of trouble is yet ahead. We are going to see these things proceed 
the trouble that will uh, unfold. There uh, is a generation that is going to arise during this hour that is uh, yet ahead that is going to be utterly wicked. We're going to see a generation that first gets swept up into the delusion of, uh, of Babylon, which is another topic for another time. Uh, and then also the, uh, the impact and the pressure that the Antichrist is going to be inflicting and demanding. So there, there are these two different pressures that we're going to see impacting the globe and impacting the value system. Uh, I'm going to skip down to point B here uh, on page three, if you're following along in the notes. Jesus continues in verse 9 and begins to describe what the, the value system is going to be like in that hour. He says, then they will deliver you up. Again, this is right after the description of wars, rumors of wars, nation rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, pestilence, earthquake, but the end is not yet. This is just the beginning of sorrows. Then he says, and then tribulation happens. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Now this is getting a bit more troubling. This is increasing in... In intensity, Jesus is describing a time when believers, followers of Jesus are going to be identified, captured, delivered, and killed for following Jesus. There's going to be a global hatred for believers. This is, I believe this is, the scripture is clear that it's also going to touch the Jews. But believers uh, are going to be targeted there's going to be a value system that finds the believers and followers of Jesus as a putrid thing and scum of the earth to be uh, part of, you know, what, what we heard about in, in, in uh, World War II, the final solution. Going to be that type of, uh, of rhetoric producing a culture that will end up uh, touching families and communities. I believe this describes that there's going to be a culture of betrayal that will touch families. In other places, Jesus warned that there will be father betraying son and brother against brother and mother against daughter and all of the different relationships not being uh, an assurance of, of loyalty, but there will be a culture of betrayal. And it's a fruit that this generation will have not only turned away from the Lord, but fully embraced darkness, fully embraced evil. Break down this passage real quick with uh, five different uh, bullet points here and give a little bit of explanation. He said that they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. What this means is there's going to be a systematic persecution put in place that is driven and motivated by the value system that is embraced by the world. 
he clarifies and continues and says that you'll be hated by all nations for his, for his namesake. It's clear that it's, it's going to be uh, targeted to those who follow Jesus. Then he gives a troubling statement that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. That there's going to be this pressure that is going to cause someone who you went to church with or sat across the dinner table from to, to turn you into the authorities or to kill you themselves. In this, uh, in this series of events, again, false prophets rise up. In this instance, I believe that there is a, a rising of false messengers, specifically of false prophets, not the cultish kind of bored, weird, deceived uh, version that, that uh, we referenced just a second ago, but I believe this is, in fact, a, uh, a, a, an occurrence of messengers rising up specifically to encourage others to, uh, to rise up and, uh, and, and persecute and martyr Christians. I believe that is part of the motivation that there's going to be messengers or false prophets of the Babylonian system and the Babylonian religion that will uh, attempt to get others to fall in line and to uh, capture Christians and to steal their stuff and, and all of those things. Again, I want to, uh, to give you a context. Um, I'm skipping back up uh, to Revelation 9. It's at the top of the page. I think it's important to, to think about the, uh, the context of the generation that, that is going to be alive. This is the way that Revelation 9 describes this generation. At the fullness of its manifestation of wickedness. It says, The rest of mankind did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear nor walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. It's describing a generation that is fully giving o given over to, to perversity and to uh, witchcraft and to demonic worship and to theft and to murder. And this is the generation that is going to, uh, to be hunting down Christians during this hour. An unfortunate byproduct of this is found in verse 12. And it says, Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The lawlessness it's referring to is the lawlessness that was just described. It will cause a pressure for those, uh, for those who are impacted. Many will see this as too great of a pressure and that... They can't bear it any longer, and they will turn away from the Lord. Because lawlessness, even the lawlessness that, I, that was just described in Revelation 9, because lawlessness will be increased or abound, the love of many will grow cold. That's a terrifying thing to think about. Believe that, that, that Jesus, in, in this passage and in others, gives us a clear path to not let that be us or anyone that, that we love. But the word prophesies that there will be many who fall away. And it's a result 
of this pressure, of this lawlessness. Well, let's continue um, in Matthew 24, 13. Actually, I think it's, it's important. Um, there's there's a, a, a passage in, in John 15, right in between 15 and 16, that I think fits perfectly right here in this passage, right after where, uh, where Jesus tells, tells his disciples, the, law, the, the lawlessness will increase at such a rate and such an intensity that it will cause many to, to turn away from, from the Lord, to turn away from him. He echoes this in the John 15, 16 passage. This is right after he, he, again, let me back up and give the context. The John 15, 16 passage is part of the larger John 13 to 17, whole kind of discourse that, that Jesus goes through as he's in his final hours before he's, he's betrayed, before he himself is betrayed. Um, in John 15, and again, this, this context is right after the, I mean, I love that song tonight, the, the John 15 theme of, of you and us, and us and you, and we'd be made perfect in one. That John 15, abiding in the vine, I, just as a, a spoiler, that is the answer. That is the answer to all of this. The abiding the laying down of our lives. He lays it out very clearly in John 15. That is the answer. He gave it to his disciples as he was about to go to the cross, and I believe it's, it's fitting to put it right in the middle of this passage, right after verse 12 and, and, and before uh, verse 13. He told his disciples in, in the upper room at, at the last meal that he had with them. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, wor the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I've said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away, that verse 12 reality. There is a way forward without falling away. Don't think it strange if we face trouble or tribulation. The servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted Jesus, expect to get persecution. I've said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, listen to this, whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He wants us to have peace in the midst of all of this persecution, the chaos, the tumult that's going to come upon the earth. To have peace in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've, come, I've overcome the world. So let's get back to the Matthew 24, 13. I believe that's an important parenthesis to put in between verse 12 and 13. 
after describing the valley that we're supposed to make it through, Jesus reminds his disciples of the charge to endure. Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I believe this verse is powerful and effective for uh, evangelism and for spreading the gospel in your neighborhood and throughout the earth. But I believe the context of this verse is describing the call to endure and that this message of hope will be proclaimed throughout the earth to a church and to a world that is, in, that is being impacted by this scourge, by this trial, by this tribulation, by this refiner's fire. There's going to be a message of good news to go throughout the earth right before the end. And I believe this is one of the major components of this gospel. The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not just that Jesus died for our sins, but we can all agree to that. But he's coming back, and he's coming back to deliver us. He's coming back to vanquish the enemy. He's coming back to, to, uh, to marry his bride, to take the church to himself. And he's coming to save the one who endures to the end. Well, as uh, he continues on in this timeline, he gives, I believe, one of the most clear signs. The most, some of these we can uh, have a little bit of un, uh, maybe ambiguity about at this moment, but there's, there's a sign that he gives us that is without question one of the clearest mile markers of the timeline of events and even will give us uh, some very clear, we can, we can, at this point in time, circle the date on the calendar. And that sign is when the Antichrist stands in the temple. This is a, a prophecy that Daniel talks about, that, uh, that other prophets mention, that Paul talked about in, in a couple different letters in the New Testament that the book of Revelation hits on uh, with great detail. But Jesus, in his kind of survey of the end times and the signs of the times, comes to this major mile marker and describes uh, the Antichrist. He describes what's going to happen as the, <coughs> as the Antichrist takes the scene and he picks up in, uh, here in verse 15. He's, and I'm on page 5, by the way, for uh, those following on in the notes under point B. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place that is the temple in Jerusalem, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. He describes a, a, uh, a local geographic impact when the Antichrist stands 
in the place of the temple and uh, unmasks himself to be the beast that he is. And uh, immediately it is time to get out. Uh, he, he says with, uh, with no uncertainty, leave immediately. Forget your possessions. Don't go back home. Get out of there immediately. He even gives some of the detail of saying, I'm really sorry. If you happen to be in Judea at that time and you're nursing or pregnant, it's going to be more difficult for you. You will be slowed down. If it happens to be during the winter, you will be slowed down. If it's on a Sabbath and you have to observe the different Sabbath laws about travel, it will be more difficult for you. Please do whatever you can. If you're in Judea at that time period, avoid these things. And he continues during this uh, uh, kind of major mile marker and says, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus unveils his merciful plan that the wrath of the Antichrist will be so severe that it will be a tribulation that the world has never seen before. And if there was no... No cutoff date, no date on the, uh, circled on the calendar that, in fact, he would, he would completely annihilate the entire globe. But he reveals that there is a plan and that it's his plan that the elect would be saved, would endure, and uh, that, that he has ultimate sovereignty and say over how far this goes. And so we can take confidence that, that even though that there's going to be uh, authority given to this Antichrist, that there is still sovereignty. Jesus is still the King of kings and Lord of lords. All right. Need to get moving here. This is so thick because a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the pages just have like all of Matthew 24 and 25. This, this resource is... is uh, could be a great Bible study if you wanted to go through this. I will likely not get through it all, but uh, I really want to get to the parable, so I'm going to kind of get through this part real quick. This is the the uh, other part and the uh, kind of the end to the the sequence of the timeline. But it begins in uh, Matthew 24:23, after describing that there is an end to these to the reign of the Antichrist and. He himself will experience a hostile takeover by Jesus himself. But he says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. This is the third occurrence that I was kind of referencing uh, at the beginning about Three different, fault, three different occasions of false messengers. The first one, kind of the culty, weird, uh, bored. The, the other one, kind of a manifestation of the, the value system of, of the Babylon system and the wicked generation. This is, is uh, one of the, the more uh, troubling, I think, instances of false messengers because they're going to have a bit of clarity of, uh, of theology. And that is... I believe that, the, that this occurrence of these false prophets in Christ, and notice in this, in this instance that they're paired together, I believe that uh, the people of the earth will want to escape 
the threat of violence and the forced worship imposed by the Antichrist. I believe that there's going to be uh, such pressure uh, that even those in Babylon will, will feel the rug has been pulled out from under them and, and uh, they, they will find themselves backed into a corner. And by this time, the church would have been preaching that Jesus is coming back and the Jews will likely have been, have been calling for their Messiah to come. And so there will be this theme from both the Jewish community and the believers and followers of Jesus who are calling for the Messiah that I believe the, the rest of the world will, will have taken notice by this point. And there's going to be this motivation or pressure for, for, the, for some individuals and sometimes teams, I believe, to rise up and, and hopefully be the, the fulfillment of that, that, uh, that prophecy. I believe that there's going to be those who, who, will, uh, who will proclaim themselves as Christ. I believe even that there's, going to be a, that there's going to be teams of people, maybe a, a brother duo or two friends or something like that. One's Elijah, one is Jesus. One's the Messiah. One is, I mean, I believe that this is a, uh, a foretelling of a pressure that is going to hit the earth where the, the world has clarity that Jesus is the answer, or at least that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the awaited Messiah is the answer of this Antichrist. And that there's going to be those who will rise up to try and hopefully be it, hopefully be the Messiah. And uh, it, it may be as simple as somebody's mom really loved their son, was like, sweetie, you were always special in my eyes. Maybe you're the Messiah, and maybe they'll believe it. I don't know, but... This will, in fact, be a trend throughout the entire earth. But I believe it's going to be out of a, a panic and crisis moment. There will be a tyrant that is so brutal and savage that it will cause this type of pressure. Well, Jesus continues and uh, ends this timeline and begins to give them some... Uh, some uh, figurative language. Um, he begins and says, this is uh, verse 27. And again, this is in sequence. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That seems kind of cryptic, but I want to decode it for you. Jesus is giving some sequence natural events. When you see lightning start here and it travels, it typically does not go from here to here and then backwards. It goes from one end to the other. There's a start and a finish of that, that lightning trail, that lightning bolt. It's possible that he specifically said east to west. Uh, for some of the implications, uh, I give you a verse there in Ezekiel 44 that's kind of interesting, talking about the glory of the Lord entering the millennial temple from the eastern gate. And it's kind of interesting. That kind of sounded familiar to me when I was reading that. Then the, the vultures gathering around a corpse. I don't believe uh, that that is too cryptic. I think he was appealing to a lot of people's uh, experience. You're walking along the countryside and you see some birds circling. You, you know pretty much what that means, that there's a corpse. And what he's saying is, if there's a corpse, some vultures are going to find it. Cause and effect. There's a sequence that happens there. 
If there's vultures gathered, you can predict that there's a carcass around because these type of birds feed on carcasses. Very simple, not hard to understand. Could be that Jesus is hinting toward the supper of the, of the great God that, that we talked about in the, the Revelation series. Give you another passage there in Ezekiel. But I believe the main point that he gives with the lightning and the, the vultures is lightning travels from one end of the sky to the other. It's a linear thing. There's birds that eat carcasses. If they're flying around, it's probably because there's a carcass. There's some sequence of events that happen. There's some, some cause and effect, some sequence that happens. I believe that he does this to be able to give them some assurance that you can know some of this, the, the timing and, and the unfolding of these events. He gets back into the timeline in Matthew 24, 29 and uh, gives... A, um, just a, a brief but kind of rapid-fire overview. He ends up hitting content that Revelation 6, 11, 12, and 14 develop in greater detail. But he goes through and describes the judgment that, that happens as a result of the Antichrist taking his, his seat and beginning the, the, the global persecution of the saints. He says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the end of heaven to the other. This is so packed that he just goes from one event to the other. I want to break this down kind of like a play-by-play. You, you watch a, you know, a, a play on some major league, uh, you know, on, on you know, NFL or, or baseball or something like that. It just happens so quick. And they do the slow-mo replay. I want to do that real quick. Here in this, this passage... Jesus actually describes the sixth seal, the war in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. He describes the seventh trumpet and then the harvest, all kind of in, in one brief uh, paragraph, uh, all in order. And, uh, and again, the book of Revelation hits on uh, in greater detail. Um, I'm going to skip over that because I really want to get to the parables. So uh, you can read that whole part, part seven on your own. Great resource, but I want to get to the parables because I believe they have uh, such practical insight for us because the point of, the, of a parable, again, is to, is to help get us in, in the, the place or in the shoes of, of the person, the characters in these parables to get us the feeling of what's happening, to give us a sense of the, uh, the crisis or the ache that, that occurs in these different parables. He gives us seven different parables to illustrate the way that those who are going to experience these events are going to feel. He gives us these very relatable scenarios and common experiences. 
to help us understand. The first one, the parable of the fig tree. He says this, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts, and puts out its leaves, you know that summer's near. So there's the parable. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. He's talking about himself here. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he's giving us some very clear uh, sequence here. He says, hey, you guys have seen the olive tree. When the, when the branches are tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that it's summer is right around the corner. We have some of those, not exactly fig trees around here, but we have, uh, you know, other trees here in Texas, or at least in this part of Texas, you see those crepe myrtles start budding, you know, it's time to get the chainsaw out. Like, no, uh, you know that the season is shifting when the grass turns from brown to green. You know, you're in Texas and it's summer version one before summer version two and then summer version three. We have pre-summer, summer and post-summer here in Texas and then winter for two weeks. Let's look at the symbols. Fig tree, tender branches and leaves, spring to summer transition. Not very cryptic. Here's what he's saying. I want to give you symbols and the lesson that I believe each one of these parables is describing. I believe what he's saying here is endure through the delay of the season. We can look to these signs and just in the same way, somebody who's longing for summer but stuck in spring can look to the tender branches and leaves begin to, to bud that it's almost summer, hang on, you can get your swimsuit on in just a second. He's saying in this case, when all of these things happen, there's a sequence of events. In this parable, tender branches, leaves, then summer. Here he just gave us an entire timeline of things that are leading up to his return. You see all of these troubling things happen, it gets really bad, and then, oh yeah, the worst thing that's ever happened, and then Jesus comes. So he's giving us some confidence in, in knowing there's a sequence, and it will happen just in the same way that I'm telling you. Next parable, he says, is related to the days of Noah. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were, as were the, the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving marriage, until the day Noah entered the flood, or entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. He just gave the parable. Then he reiterates and says, this is what it's going to be like. There's going to be people who are not paying attention and will be swept away with the flood, just like in the days of Noah. He gives some examples. He gives a parable. Noah was paying attention. He didn't know the day or hour. The whole time he was building the ark, he knew the season because Jesus, or the Lord said, build the ark, Noah. You don't know what time it's, it, what day it's going to rain, but build the ark. Those around him weren't paying attention. Noah built the ark. Then the Lord said, Noah, it's ark time. Get in the ark. 
The others were still not paying attention, and they were swept away with the flood, with judgment. Jesus relates it and says, it'll be the same way. Two people will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Taken means swept away in, in the flood, swept away in judgment. Two women, two women will be at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. One will be taken in judgment in the same way the flood, the other one left. The symbols, the days of Noah, the delay leading up to the flood, and I believe that's probably the most uh, uh, emphasized point here. No one knows the day or the hour. That's, that's the thing. The first parable, the fig tree says, you can know the season. In this one, he says, you don't know the day or the hour, but that doesn't give you a license to live carelessly. Do not cast off restraint. In the next one, the thief in the night. I'm at the top of page 10 here. Therefore, stay awake. So again, right on the heels of do not live carelessly, as in the days of Noah, he says, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. That's the end of the parable. Then he says, therefore... You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here's some symbols. The master of the house, the thief in the night, sleep, an unknown timing of a break-in. I believe the lesson here is endure in staying alert. Kind of a carryover from the previous one. Do not live carelessly or cast off restraint, but stay alert, specifically through the delay. In these parables, there's a common reoccurring theme that there is a delay. There is a season where it's going to seem like, shouldn't this already have been over? This timeline seems like it's dragging on. It's kind of like there will be an accusation of where is the promise of his coming? But he encourages us to stay awake to be ready, to be alert. Next one, the types of servants. Verse 45, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed. Again, here's that delay. And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards. Again, back to the days of Noah. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are consequences to our actions here. And I believe this is hinting back to that falling away, that there really is a consequence of living carelessly and not staying alert. Jesus builds on these previous parables and gives us some symbols here. Servants, different types. Faithful and wise, and then the wicked servant. He gives an assignment, a delayed return, reward, and punishment. In this example, this parable, I believe he begins to introduce the, the concept of being faithful as an esteemed value in the kingdom. Jesus gives us assignments in general as Christians. 
But he also gives us some specifics. And despite the delay, we are supposed to remain faithful. He esteems faithfulness and he rewards accordingly. We want to be faithful with the things that he tells us, the things in the word, the things that he's told us subjectively. If he's told you to, to be doing that thing, do that thing until he tells you otherwise. No matter how much time passes, no matter how uncool it is, no matter how old it gets, do that thing that he told you to do. We want to be a faithful people. If it's overlooked, if it's underpaid, we want to be a faithful people to whatever he tells us to do. If it's painful, we want to be faithful. The next parable, the ten virgins. In this parable, again, wisdom is emphasized. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For then the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Pay attention to that. The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. After the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, for we prophesied in your name. We prayed in your name. And he says, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. Again, some symbols. The virgins, the lamps, the oil, the bridegroom, the delayed arrival. We want to prepare. Here's a lesson. We want to prepare to endure a delayed arrival. We can only endure by abiding in the sustaining love of God. This is wisdom. The difference between the, the two groups of the, the five foolish and the five wise is one group prepared to endure a delay. You cannot endure the delay of however long it takes until Jesus comes back without abiding. There is no way that we can, uh, we can avoid abiding. In that, in that John 15 passage, he says, If you do not abide, my Father cuts off the branches and throws it to the fire. If you do not abide, you will not endure the delay of his coming. The next parable is the talents. In the last parable, wisdom was esteemed. This next one really hits home the faithfulness. For it, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted him at the top of page 12. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents to another two, to another one. Pay attention to this. To each according to his ability. Praise the Lord. <laughs> then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had, see, he, 
he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts, and he who received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, <laughs> saying, Master, you delivered to me five. Here I've made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This repeats with the two talent who gained two more. Skipping down, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least invest, then you have, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what is mine with, uh, my own with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to him who has the ten, for everyone who has will more be given, and he, who, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken, and cast that worthless servant into outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Symbols, the servants, a master, talents return on investment, a journey, a long-delayed arrival, faithfulness, reward, and punishment. Side note, I didn't know if it would be helpful. Modern-day equivalent of a talent, $18,750. I didn't find any other application to put that in there, but just in case you wanted to know how much a talent would be worth. Here's the lesson. Be good and faithful to steward over what we've been given while we endure the delay. I believe this message is saying, hey guys, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be uh, very uh, tumultuous. Life will go on. You will still have family. You'll still have bills to pay. You'll still have things you need to invest your time and resources in. You cannot put these things off. Be faithful in the things that, that you're, that you're uh, given responsibility over and the assignments that you've been given. If we are faithful with these things, the run-of-the-mill stuff, if we're faithful, we'll be given, uh, in, we'll be given charge of more. Last parable. Jesus wraps up this discourse with a parable with some pretty limited symbolism, but uh, a very clear message. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. That's it. That's the parable. Shepherd separating sheep and goats. Pretty simple. But he continues and says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you? All of these things. And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on the left, again, the goats, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his, ins- and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. And I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they'll answer, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, or in prison, and not minister to you. Then he'll answer, surely I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Simple symbolism, shepherd, sheep, and goats. I believe that this is an admonition that we will have to love as an expression in this age, I believe, or in in this time, this season. Love will be expressed in the laying down of our lives. Again, that John 15. In this life, and especially in the time and the beginning of sorrows, the tribulation, and the final days leading up to Jesus' return, we are going to need each other, and we will see each other in all of these various instances. We will want to to look toward each other and prefer each other more than our own ambitions. This will be the greatest expression of love from God and to God. Side note, this could the case could also be made that Jesus was specifically referring to caring for his countrymen the Jews. As I read it, there's going to be a great persecution of the Jews. And they will have no friends, similar to how they had no friends during World War II. But in this global instance, the church will have opportunity to minister to Jesus' countrymen in a way that will bless his heart. And I believe that's, that's our call, to lay down our lives for our brothers, our, believer, our fellow believers in Christ, but also to look out for Jesus' countrymen who, as we've studied in this Revelation series, will end up starting the millennium with. Worship leader, you can go ahead and come on up. So we have need of endurance. This was a common theme throughout these parables. And reading this timeline, we see there's a very troubling time that is coming to this planet. The earth is going to face pressure and persecution like we've never seen before. John identified himself in the beginning of Revelation this way. He said, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. The four churches that received commendation in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 had this in common. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. To the church in Pergamum, right? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, I know your works. You have little power. And yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, hold fast to what you have. Believe our hour is coming. Believe in Matthew 24 and 25 and elsewhere we've been given the charge to endure. That we would not love our lives even to the even till death, but that we would live as living sacrifices. I'm encouraged, though reading these sobering realities, that it's God's intention and His will that we would be victorious and overcome. I want to give us a couple verses. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone's to be slain with a sword, the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep his commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. And lastly, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in the struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Father, would you help us? Help us to run with endurance the race set before us. to Jesus as our example that he would be the joy set before us that we would not shrink back but have faith and persevere this concludes this teaching from the prayer room for more resources please visit our website at tprdfw.com thank you